human decency is not derived from religion, it precedes it. The religion of one age is the literary entertainment of the next. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Exceptional claims demand exceptional evidence. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of the Leaders in Free Thought podcast. I know you all broke it up about it. I know. I know. I'll give you a minute. This is the final episode for a couple of reasons. Uh, the biggest probably being that I just don't have the time to dedicate to it that I used to. Graduate school is quite a bit more time consuming than I had anticipated. I'm not sure what I was expecting though, really. And the second is um, my enthusiasm kind of waned a little bit. It's not quite at the level that it used to be, uh, at least regarding some of the topics that I used to cover on this podcast. And that's not because I started believing in magic or homeopathy. This seems to happen with a lot of people, but... I will give you my account. So a few years ago when the possibility of not believing in magic, not believing in some sort of supernatural being or force, when I first accepted that as a real possibility, it was quite a revelation in many ways. Of course, this makes perfect everything makes perfect sense now of course there's no magic of course there are no gods of course there are no demons of course there are no devils you know of course objects like crucifixes don't have any kind of special powers uh, of course why didn't I realize this before and it was just so oh oh I can't I don't know how to describe the feeling really but it's just like uh, liberating in a way, freeing would be apt. But then also what was really interesting to me, what I would, I would go back through my life and I would think, well, how did I get this way? Why did I believe the things that I used to? You know, what, what caused me to believe? What causes others to believe? You know, and really exploring that topic was really fascinating and really awesome. And then things like biology and cosmology and philosophy and morality and um, psychology and uh, social psychology, they all took on a whole different meaning after, after I finally accepted that there wasn't any kind of supernatural force or magic. Um, and they all became... I looked at all those topics in a completely different light and uh, 
you know, I looked at religion in a whole different way. Coming at it from the view of a non-believer changes how you think of it so dramatically. Well, and so in my case, I thought, well, if, <laughs> much like a religious person thinks, well, if I have found the truth, if I know the truth, if I just present the facts, if I present the data, if I can just reason with these people, then they will come to believe it, and then the world will be a better place. I just need to get that information out there and just show them. Show them, talk to them, tell them why a belief in a God that makes absolutely no sense if you think about it for more than two seconds. If you think about any kind of pseudo-scientific New Age belief like quantum healing or power bracelets or homeopathy or anything like that, this is obviously wrong. <laughs> There's no logical way that it can make sense. There's no reason to think this is true. I just thought if I could do that, then people would see. And of course, how naive I was. <laughs> I think Michael Shermer has a quote. I don't know if it's Michael Shermer or Sam Harris, but I'm going to go with Michael Shermer. You can't reason people out of a belief that they didn't reason themselves into. Facts don't matter. If you believe something so strongly, the facts don't matter. And they will just, it's, it's like white noise to them. They don't even hear it. How, how could you possibly believe that the Bible is the word of God? And it was always this circular reasoning type thing. Uh, I believe it because the Bible says so. The Bible says it's the word of God. So, it's the word of God. Well, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that it's true? Because it's the word of God. Why do you believe it's the word of God? Because it says it's the word of God. You're telling me the human civilization is only a few thousand years old and it came from two people? Do you think two people can create a sustainable population? Well, if God's involved. You think you have guardian angels? Really? You think they got you that job? You applied for a bunch of jobs. You prayed. You got the job. It was your guardian angels. Where are the guardian angels in Somalia? Do they have them? Afghanistan? Do they have them? And eventually I think I came to the point where, look, the people believe what they're going to believe. I think the smart ones, the logical ones, the reasonable ones, they will eventually come to realize that it's all bogus. I mean, the information is out there. The information is free and it's out there. It's in libraries. It's on the internet. Of course, there's a lot of bullshit on the internet as well. But, but if your beliefs are so entrenched that you don't even hear me when I'm talking, and when I'm trying to have a reasonable conversation, and instead of listening to me, you point to a Bible quote, then... You've got the God virus, as Daryl Ray would say.
and there's no prescription. But anyway, there are people much smarter than me who have much more expertise and knowledge about things like philosophy or things like physics, astronomy, cosmology. They can do a far better job addressing all these issues than I can with my limited knowledge. So that's the other reason I decided to discontinue. However, I'm working on starting a new podcast, only this time it's going to be about nutrition. Um, something which I have a little bit more knowledge, I feel like I'm more competent in than trying to talk about how the universe began without any kind of transcendent being. But you should look for it soon. I'm going to call it the science of nutrition. I'm going to try to be as scientific and evidence-based as possible, and I'll try to expose all the BS that I know of. But anyways, today we have a uh, an author on the podcast that I interviewed a while back, but like I said, I haven't had a lot of time to to do any kind of editing or production on this podcast, so I'm finally getting around to it. And so her name is Janet Heimlich, and she wrote a book called Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. And I think the title says it all. There's really no explanation necessary. So here is that. Well, I was born into a Jewish family that was as un-Jewish as you can get. Uh, the word God was never mentioned in our household just because it sort of didn't come up. My parents were really not practicing. My older brothers were bar mitzvahed, but then after that, it's like my parents didn't even bother with that with us. Uh, we had a Christmas tree every year. So I really didn't have a handle on what a religious upbringing is like. Uh, although I was taken to synagogue by some family friends a few times um, where I, I heard some things uttered by uh, the elder rabbi there for for us children in the kids program that I thought was a little bit uh, inappropriate. Uh, but for the most part, um, I really wasn't aware of any kind of religious influence in my life whatsoever. Uh, growing up in Cincinnati, you know, again, it just wasn't, it wasn't a part of, of our upbringing. Uh, we were, we, we didn't live in the Jewish part of town. We just, we lived really in the Waspy part of town. So I was kind of aware of more uh, of uh, religious discrimination, really, by the Wasps in, in Cincinnati. Um, I mean, things have improved there since then. I grew up a long time ago. Uh, when I went to school uh, for college, I went to Stanford University. So launched way out to California. And again, just wasn't a part of my life whatsoever. It never came up with people I socialized with. Fast forward to the age of 41, I have a child, and she starts attending a Montessori school, and the teachers there were so great with the kids and talked to them in this really respectful and compassionate way, and also were firm. Uh, and I really remarked as to how differently they attended to the children than what I remember growing up. 
And I think I just became more attuned to children's issues being a first-time mom. So I got into discussions with friends about their upbringings, and this issue was just, you know, discussed, uh, you know, kind of randomly. And I began to notice when I got into these discussions that most people I knew and I had known for a long time were raised with a lot more religion than I was. And for the most part, the more religion they were raised with, the more negative their experiences were. And I guess from that, I was then following news stories because at the time, uh, well, it had been a few years since the Catholic child sexual abuse scandal broke. But that year, 2008, the Pope came to visit the United States and for the first time publicly acknowledged the existence of the child sexual abuse scandal. Uh, He gave kind of a, a weak apology to survivors. And that same week, 400 plus kids were removed from the FLDS compound in West Texas. And uh, we, you know, all sorts of things have resulted from from that investigation. Uh, I didn't decide that I was going to write a book on this issue until I read about a child death case in Baltimore where a toddler was starved to death by a small cult uh, for not saying amen at mealtimes. His name was Javon Thompson. And uh, his mother was was one of the perpetrators, and everybody involved in that has been uh, convicted or has pleaded guilty since then. And that was really what drove me over the top to to want to write the book. That's pretty shocking. It's a shocking tale. It was it was devastating to me when I first read that case. I I hadn't read of a religiously motivated child death case up until that point. As I was reading through your book, I was kind of struck by the sheer number of sources that you cite, um, all kinds of books and articles and blogs and personal interviews. So how did you approach researching this book? And also, I guess, how did you find the people that you personally spoke with? I've never researched anything like this book. Um, yeah, there are something like 75 pages just of notes at the end of the book. Um, I guess I, I was so new to a lot of the topics related to this issue and there wasn't really a lot out there that was easily accessible. So I just had to dig really deeply. I had some research assistants help me with just getting into university databases that I couldn't to retrieve study after study after study. I read untold numbers of criminal cases. Uh, I, I must have ordered 30 books from Amazon, some of them which were printed over a hundred years ago. Um, these these old kind of primers on on how to uh, teach children about religion. I really just grabbed anything I could. I mean, I just wanted to learn everything I could about it. Um, as far as the interviews, anybody I heard about who was an expert on the topic or something related to the topic, I would try to locate them or read their books. When it came to finding people who were survivors, some of them were pretty prominent because they had websites devoted to um, their the problems related to the religion of their upbringing. But many other people I just found either through the internet or through friends of friends, or I mean, sometimes I would literally just be in a cafe. Some would come up and see some bizarre book that I was researching, and 
asked me about it. And the next thing I knew, we're talking about their upbringing and found out that, you know, they were growing up in this Pentecostal, oppressive, uh, strange environment where everyone is fearful of demons and they had had to undergo exorcisms and... And then all of a sudden, they're testimonial in my book. So they just approached you and like spilled their guts? Well, I think a lot of people who were raised with oppressive and abusive faith are on a lifelong journey to try to understand what happened to them. So when they see that there's something above the surface that is revealing perhaps of, of something they could learn from, then yeah, I think that they're very interested to learn more about what issues they they continue to to deal with. So yeah, the, I remember one particular time, you know, a woman did come up and ask me about it, and then we we talked a little bit about her background. Why is physical abuse so common in religious communities? Physical abuse is is common in very conservative authoritarian religious communities uh, because corporal punishment is so common and so heavily promoted. Obviously, religious leaders and other people of faith do, do not say, we believe in abusing children. You won't find that in any doctrine. But what we, you will find is a strong adherence to the idea that children should be unquestionably obedient. And oftentimes, parents in these communities, in these places of worship, are it's heavily stressed that essentially God wants them to rid their children of sin, to set their kids straight. It is a pathway, they are told, to salvation. So they are actually acting in a godly way if they are authoritarian in the way they raise their kids. And going along with that is corporal punishment. And of course, you have many passages in the Bible, specifically in the book of Proverbs, that religious leaders lean on to support their claim that you must spank children in order to save them from going to hell. And this idea... This, this theological connection you'll mostly find in conservative Protestant Christian environments. Corporal punishment is stressed in other types of authoritarian cultures, but in a different way. For example, in conservative Muslim communities, the, the idea there is, is that um, female purity is really important. So, for example, I mean, honor killings is not something that has happened very much in this country, uh, but it is happening more and more as more and more Muslims are immigrating here. Now, obviously, the vast majority of Muslims would have nothing to do with something as horrendous as honor killing. However, you will see a lot of corporal punishment related to um, violations of of female purity. So, for example, if it's a very conservative Muslim family and a girl in the family is uh, perhaps uh, talking to um, non-Muslim boys or dating Muslim boys, sometimes even having been a rape victim, uh, they, they can be severely punished. And there has been 
one case in particular that happened in Dallas where the victims of honor killings were, uh, one of them was underage. There were two sisters who were shot to death. Now, the perpetrator, the the alleged perpetrator is still on the loose, but based on uh, interviews um, done by the media and, and so forth, the father uh, of the girls, um, they, they, they were killed in his vehicle. He had been complaining that his daughters were acting Western, dating non-Muslim boys, and uh, family members firmly believed that, that this was an honor killing perpetrated by the girl's uh, father, and their ages were 17 and 18. If I was a member of a church and I had knowledge, or if I saw evidence of child maltreatment, religious child maltreatment, I'd like to think that I would alert the authorities, but in chapter two, you claim that most church members wouldn't do that. So why would that be? Well, you know, I don't have statistics to say that uh, exactly what you, the way you put it, but um, there, there's no question that in many religious communities and places of worship, there has been a strong religious, excuse me, strong resistance to reporting child maltreatment. Um, and and this, there's, there are many reasons for that. Um, you are still seeing in even the largest religious institutions uh, this resistance. Now, religious leaders don't say, don't report child abuse. What they say is um, comply with the laws so if it's a state where you live, where you're mandated to report, then you should. They're not saying, you know, break the law. They also, however, strongly urge congregants often to report to the religious leaders. I just read uh, words from a pamphlet put out by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, an institution which, like many, strongly opposes child abuse, they say anybody who's suspected of child abuse, you know, would not be a member of our church. Well, that's great. But their answer to their membership, if they suspect child abuse, is not to go to the local authorities. Instead, they say, call this 1-800 number. And who answers that? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm. Orthodox Jewish communities, the same thing. You have powerful rabbis that tell believers to go to their rabbi, not the police, if they suspect child abuse. And you see this same type of uh, protocol in the Catholic Church. And, you know, really every conservative religious uh, community that I've come across is just a a distrust of secular authorities. And, And, of course, Child Protective Services and the police and all these tax-funded, you know, folks don't do everything right all the time. But a child has a much better chance to get help if their abuse is reported to secular authorities than if it's kept quiet or hidden within a religious culture. I mean, what has happened to all the kids who were molested by priests where all that information stayed in the church? The priests were just sent to a different parish. Protected, essentially. In, in many times, yeah, in many cases. Um, were the kids given uh, counseling? In most cases, they weren't. 
I mean, all of this is very, very recent new stuff that the church says, yes, we should get counseling to the victims and all this kind of thing. But the Pope still says that you should obey the local laws. Well, yeah, except that the local laws oftentimes are vague or they don't mandate the clergy report or they have a big loophole, the confession loophole, which clergy can can rely on to to avoid reporting abuse. You do, a, you do a piece on religious emotional abuse. It seems to me the, the emotional abuse inflicted by religions, um, it takes, takes a more significant toll on the children. Um, would you agree with that? More than non-religious more than or? More than the adults. The adults in religion, they can kind of compartmentalize things and kind of rationalize different things well if an adult if an adult joins up with a harmful church let's say um, they can suffer a great deal of abuse that can go on for years however if one is a child which is raised in that church especially since birth then the issues that they have to struggle with will most often be be a lifelong struggle i mean the problems that they have to live with they live with for decades it is much more difficult for someone who's raised in that kind of environment to unravel it to learn to to learn about it to get beyond it than it is for someone who would have started in it say at the age of 18 or something like that yeah exactly um, and I don't want to make light on uh, of, of of what adults suffer because um, that happens all the time but there's been a lot written about that I mean when you pick up books on what they call spiritual abuse or toxic faith and that kind of thing uh, you'll rarely see anything any comment made about uh, children. And a big reason for that is a lot of those people who are writing those books are Christians who um, want to convert the abused to give their lives over to Jesus. You'll find that in a lot of, a lot of those books. Well, they're not going to be able to speak to kids. And that seems to be their agenda a lot of the time. So you'll see very little written about children. You'll see, you know, you'll see uh, m- most of what they write about has to do with the harmful effects on, on adults. I don't think you can write a book about religious child abuse or maltreatment without mentioning sexual abuse. Uh, and most people might come to the section and think, uh, yeah, this is all going to be about the Catholic Church. You know, tell me something I don't know. Was there anything surprising you found in researching uh, sexual abuse? Yes. It's not only gone on forever, but it's been condoned, religiously condoned, for a very long time. Now, when we talk about child sexual abuse, we have to look at it, not how people looked at it hundreds of years ago, but how we look at it now. We are a more enlightened culture than we were way back when. So we understand now what sexual abuse is. 
So I believe from coming from that perspective, um, having sex with a child was as wrong centuries ago as it is now, in my view. Just because the immediate environment thinks it's okay centuries ago doesn't, doesn't mean it was okay. I mean, they used to sacrifice children to gods. Uh, are we going to say that, that that was okay because everybody then thought it was fine? Um, and what you do find in scripture are examples of uh, how marriage was allowed between adults and very young girls, even as young as toddlers. And th- this this aspect, this this allowance that that marriage could be consummated at such a young age, uh, carried through um, for a very long time. Uh, the Catholic Church, in fact, tried to keep the age of consent uh, at a very young age, um, and uh, and then you 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 come to today where there have been religious groups that have condoned adult child sex. Now, again, it's almost always marriage-related, so you're going to have older male, younger female. I do talk about um, one uh, religious movement and a sect, the first being the children of God and the second one being the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS, um, that that made child sexual abuse, as we define it, part of their doctrine. That's in the minority. Today, you're not going to find any, any church that condones, that openly condones child sexual abuse. But what you have, however, are many religious beliefs that enable it. So, for example, the idea that we all should revere and even worship religious authorities is highly problematic in terms of child sexual abuse. You know, we, we've heard so many times of parents that allowed their boy or girl to go spend tons and ti- tons of time with uh, one-on-one time with clergy and no background checks, just this person must be wonderful because they're a man of the cloth or something like that. And, uh, and, and this has happened in every faith where the religious authority is allowed all of this access <laughs> To children, um, so so that belief that that religious leaders are somehow like superhuman or something like that, or close to God, or you know, have some kind of supernatural ability, um, has been harmful to children concerning sexual abuse. So before I picked up your book, I I kind of always assumed that something like female circumcision was relatively rare, and it was only kind of happened in like these tribal parts of the Middle East or something, but that's not exactly true, is it? Right. Few people know that female genital cutting happened in this country for decades. It started in the late 1800s, at least that's when uh, some quacky religious doctors were promoting it. Um, There's evidence that it occurred uh, in the early uh, 1900s. And I even interviewed a woman who's my age who was circumcised when, when she was uh, a child. Um, this procedure was often a 
clitoridectomy, removal of the clitoris, for the purpose of preventing masturbation. And that's, that was a big factor in um, why so many male babies were, were circumcised for, for a very long time. And so while many people associate Islam with female genital cutting, and many Muslims would disagree that, you know, there's anything, the two have anything to do with each other because female genital cutting is not in the Quran, but, but, but there are Muslims that justify that procedure uh, of, of female circumcision religiously. Um, but, but the truth is that when it occurred in this country, the, those cases were, came from a Christian-based religious perspective because um, there were these puritanical beliefs that masturbation is a sin. One reason why not many people know about this is because it was kind of excised from the medical textbooks. Yeah, kind of, uh, <laughs> and the, 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 one of the biggest promoters of the idea of, you know, we, we really need to do whatever we can to stop children from masturbating uh, was Dr. Kellogg, who started the Kellogg serial, and he was a... Uh, uh, Ad, uh, first Adventist, um, kind of seven, sorry, Seventh Day Adventist, <laughs> um, just a real, real extremist when it came to um, what he thought was, you know, health issues. Yeah, that's a really cringeworthy uh, section to go through. It talks about like a five-year-old being. Uh, anyways, um, religious medical neglect was something I was kind of unaware of until recently, and I think I first became aware of it a couple of years ago. Um, when I heard of a case where uh, a young girl had diabetes and her parents tried to opt it out of medical care and instead tried to uh, pray it away somehow. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, do, do people really do this? Is this, is this a thing? So please restore my faith in humanity <laughs> and tell me that this kind of behavior is exceedingly rare. Experts estimate that there are about 10 child death cases a year due to religious medical neglect. Is that accurate? It's hard to say. Um, certainly those are the cases we are made aware of, especially if there's no plea and the case goes to trial. Um, so the case that I think you're talking about, which took place in Wisconsin, was a very high-profile case um, where, where, where the parents were convicted. Um, they got a very, very light sentence. This is usually the case due to legislative problems regarding this particular form of severe neglect. What I think needs to be uh, put out there is that medical neglect can happen in many, many different circumstances where the child survives. I mean, for example, if you're a child who has a headache, you know, I used to get headaches when I was a kid, I guess because I didn't drink enough water. And when that happened, you know, usually someone would give me a child's aspirin or something like that. You know, having a headache and not given treatment for that is abusive. Now, how many kids get earaches and aren't treated for that? Uh... You know, that can be really painful. My understanding is that if it's something severe like a broken bone, yes, that's attended to at a hospital. But you know, there are many, many, many other ailments that children can suffer that are, are terrible if they're not treated. Um, so the cases where we've seen where there have been deaths, 
Um, these, these are cases where the kids develop diseases or infections that, you know, normally would be easily treatable, treatable with, with insulin. That would be the case of diabetes, like the one I think you're talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, if there's an infection, you know, if you don't get antibiotics, yes, you can die from that. So, you know, some of these cases go on for a long time where the child is suffering immeasurably because they're not getting any treatment. And instead, everybody's praying over them. And uh, sometimes kids can be made to feel like it's their fault, that they're not God-worthy enough. And that's why they're not getting better. It's something wrong with with their faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a punishment, maybe. Yeah. It's kind of strange because I think you'll have physical abuse in religious households and also non-religious households, and the same with sexual abuse and emotional abuse. But I think this medical neglect, I think you you have to have like this perfect faith in order to say, no, you know, medic- we don't need medical care. We can, God, God is more powerful than all the all the doctors in the world, and they can... What's more, and this is really where it gets selfish, I think those believers also are denying their children medical care as a way to worship. They want to be seen, you know, in a good light by God. So they're actually doing it for, as I see it, they're doing it for their own salvation opportunity. (laughs) You know, I'm acting in a righteous way. By not yeah. taking my, if I take my child to a doctor, I'm actually offending God. So what's the call to arms? What can, what can we do? Well, there are legislative changes I wish that would take place. For example, I wish every state that has a religious exemption in me- uh, medical neglect cases where parents are given prosecutorial immunity uh, if they deny their children medical care due to faith healing beliefs. Uh, I wish those exemptions would go away so that they get prosecuted in the same way that parents that neglect uh, the health of their children where religion's not involved uh, get punished. Uh, to me, there's, you know, if, if a child um, dies from, from medical neglect because their parents are on drugs versus the fact that their parents are really pious, um, the suffering is the same. Why should we consider a child who dies for religious reasons less worthy than a child that dies for non-religious reasons? So I wish those exemptions would all get get repealed. Uh, unfortunately, they often happen when there's a real tragedy. Um, I want all cl- clergy to be mandated to report maltreatment. I think the confession loophole should be removed, and every religious institution uh, it, with, within those institutions, if, if there's a high-ranking leader that's told about abuse from a priest, say, or a priest hears about it from a congregant, uh, those cases, if they're suspected abuse, they they need to be reported. And I, I think the clergy should be under the same, man, same mandates as teachers and lawyers and doctors. Um, the statutes of limitations regarding sexual abuse, I, I think, should be extended. Uh, you know, and that, that affects all, all cases of sexual abuse. I have a section in the book that deals with religious authoritarianism, and parents... Um, can learn if they are raising their children in religious authoritarian environments. Uh, I, I think if they if they look at the series of questions that I provide them, um, it's kind of a checklist to, to try to get out whether or not they are 
in religious authoritarian cultures. And I think that's sometimes hard to tell for some parents, especially if they're raised in that environment. So if you're a parent and you're raising your child in a religious authoritarian culture, I think they should get out. Um, just, just a couple, I guess, more philosophical points. Um, I get really tired of people raising the religious rights issue. I, I think when it comes to protecting children from abuse, protecting their safety, uh, all, all children deserve the right to live in, in a happy, safe, and, and healthy environment. And if religious rituals or practices are causing children to be harmed, then those people need to figure out a different way to worship. And they can do that. The question is, will they prioritize children's rights enough to do that? The fact is that many people prioritize religious rights over children's rights. And that's something I think that has to stop. 